Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we discuss the hottest fire news to hit within the last two weeks. I'm your host, Inanna Hanke, and I'm joined today by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. Happy spring to both of you. I'm so glad that we made it, although it was actually snowing here in Portland. I'm hoping that maybe the weather is turning a little more noticeably where both of you are. Well, funny you should say that, Inanna, and, and good to good to be with you again here. And happy spring to everybody! It is actively snowing right now outside my window, uh, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes is a bad thing. In preparation of the wildfire season, we're going to spend some time talking about about disasters and and what that could mean. Uh, but yesterday it was beautiful and sunny golf weather, and today it's it's snowing. So uh, spring in Oregon. Great to be with you both. Uh, it's going to be a fun episode. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'm on a little bit different perspective here in sunny southern Nevada. We're flirting with 60 degrees, not as quite as warm as we'd like it, but uh, there's no shushing down the mountain on our end here in southern Nevada. You all might have some snow, but it's all good. It's all good. We're making sure that we're covering our geological bases between all three of us. That's right. All right. Well, today here are the most and least disaster-prone states, which is an article that was published by The Hill on March 15th, based on a variety of factors such as fiscal impact, disaster risk, and climate resilience. This article selected the five most and least disaster-prone states and talks about the different types of disasters that they experience or the lack thereof. And something that struck me right away about this assessment was that it felt geologically unfair. If you look at the least disaster-prone states that it selected, I mean, with the glaring exception of Alaska, all of them were just that tiny northeasternmost corner of the United States, which is just a fraction of the landmass of Texas, which was the most disaster-prone state that it picked. So just an initial thought that I had is that maybe if we had ranked disaster by region, it might be a little bit more balanced. But Bob, what did you think about their assessment? Well, that's a really good point. And I didn't I didn't even think about uh, you know, disaster prone by square by square mile to bring in some equity across these small states versus these big states. But, uh, you know, nothing surprised me uh, about these different areas. Uh, you know, we see a lot in the news, but we've been talking about this in the industry for a long time. What I think this article really is what's important about bringing this up and having this conversation is the disasters we're facing are getting getting more intense. They're getting worse. They're getting, you know, the seasons for these types of events are getting are longer. Maybe we can dab into a little bit of the stress that this causes to the emergency response system and to the emergency responders. But just on the heels of, of it, right, there's so much uh, activity that's drawing a lot of concern here. Um, for the listeners, the top the top ones for most disaster prone is Texas, Mississippi, Oklahoma, California, and Florida in that order. And then the least were, was Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Alaska, and, and Delaware. So, you know, some of our states, unfortunately, are getting hit with all of them. You know, Texas is getting it all. Wildfires, tornadoes, hurricanes, blizzards, uh, uh, flooding activities. They are a hotbed for various types of, uh, of mess. I mean, I think it was last year with the major power challenges that they had, which brought uh, thousands, tens of thousands, if not folks uh, without power for extensive periods of time. 
And I want to sort of frame these disasters in the emergency response domain. Like, what do we need to be thinking about, right? And and Jeff and I've spent a lot of time offline just chatting about what what does community risk reduction look like in the modern, you know, in the 21st century going forward. Uh, what do we know about you know changes in climate and how is it impacting communities and how are we preparing for it as far as a fire service? I can speak about wildfire. You know, that's something that I'm quite quite intimate with being out here in the West and the Western fire chiefs having wildfire resilience initiatives that we're working on. You can't suppress your way through these, you know, those types of disasters, right? This is, you can, it's not a suppression solution alone. The other disasters that our, our colleagues across the United States are encountering, many of those don't have a suppression option at all. I mean, wildfire is, is one of the only ones where you can put effort and resources towards stopping the disaster from happening. Most others are coming their forces of nature, their natural disasters for that reason. And the best thing we can do is prepare our communities to be resilient against it by having uh, uh, you know stronger structures and that kind of stuff, and then be prepared to rebuild or be resilient on the other side of it. The challenge emergency response has, Jeff, and I want you to get in on, on this conversation because I know you've got some extensive experience when it comes to how we deploy FEMA resources across the state or across the country. As we have more disasters, as these disasters go longer, it puts a higher strain because you know we don't get more responders as a result of having more presidential declarations of disasters. What we're doing is moving them about the country, and we're mobilizing responders from one area to another. When we have multiple disasters going on across the country, like we see in these uh, hazard seasons, it's putting more stress on the fire responders over and over longer seasons. Jeff, do you want to, you mind sharing just a little bit on your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it is a problem and this isn't a hot take, but in, in conjunction with the fact that those emergency incidents aren't going to stop, more and more people are moving to those areas because people are, are migrating to areas that have weather economics and, and opportunity, right? So there's more people moving to Florida. There's more people moving to California. So not only are these uh, emergency incidents, tornadoes, hurricanes happening with a higher level of prevalence, there's going to be more population to, to deal with. And yeah, that directly impacts the fire chiefs, the people uh, making the decisions. It it absolutely impacts the first responders, the city managers, all the community and elected leaders, because their first priority is to take care of home. And when you're a part of a FEMA team, a regional team, you have to displace those resources to another community's emergency. And it puts you in a real predicament. You want to help. You want to assist. That is part of your mission. But in light of a lot of the struggles that fire departments are having, staffing day-to-day, mandatory overtimes are through the roof on almost every fire department from the East Coast to the West Coast. And how do you staff your department adequately, sufficiently for the community that is your first priority while still assisting on larger goals, like at the state level uh, or at the regional level? And it, it, it it's really tricky and there's no cookbook. There's no exact answer. And it's, it's realistically touch and go. How can you make a deployment work? Um, you know, recently there was an example in, in Southern Nevada where there was a USAR deployment. There was a wildfire in Northern Nevada and still in Southern Nevada facing a staffing issue. And it really was um, 
a very, very sensitive topic. And, and while it wound up having a happy ending and there were resources able to move, it was a very, very time sensitive. You had to be uh, very cognizant of keeping people staffed at home. So that's a long way around saying that there's more people that are adding to the problem and what fire chiefs and city managers have to do. Uh, and I say that together because there's really a joint, a really a joint decision-making process that takes place there when these resources are deployed, notifications and, and things like that. They really have to stay focused on their communities while still being able to assist the region and or the state when they can. I would add to Jeff, that you know, for fire service professionals that are not necessarily in the disaster prone regions identified here in the article, but those that don't don't face wildfire, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you right, that wildfire is coming to an area near you soon. And that's concerning. Uh, but even more importantly than where it is, where the changes in climate are impacting areas of our country differently than they have in the past. It's important for fire service professionals to recognize, I mean, this distribution of resources that we shift to help support each other on federal declaration of disasters really means uh, there's a couple of things. Number one, even if you don't experience wildfire, maybe you're an urban fire department and a wildfire isn't in your specialty, maybe give consideration to that. It's not uncommon that in Oregon, our most wildfire prone areas are borrowing resources from our least wildfire prone areas like out in Portland area where Anon is at are providing resources across the rest of the state. And that's how we're able to, to manage the demands. But as we have more fires on the landscape at any given time, that reduces the system's reliability and we need more and more resources. What we have just gets spread more thin across all the different emergencies and you cannot attack them the way that we as fire service professionals want to. You know, We're used to asking for more resources, more resources show up. It's not uncommon and when we're at the peak of fire seasons, there's no more resources to deploy. From the community perspective is, even if the fire isn't impacting you, the smoke is, right? right. And, and looking at smoke in and of itself as, as a part of these disasters is uh, something that we need to give more consideration to. Yeah. And if I could just add in, Bob, you know, Nevada is an, an excellent example of what you just mentioned. We're an adjacent community to California and, and you know, states that are surrounding us. So even in times where we're not impacted by wildland fires, because we sit in the valley, that smoke comes over into this community, into Clark County, and it has a huge impact, not just visually, obviously, but respiratory. I mean, there's actually real health impacts. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, these disasters are impacting communities where the fire is raging or the tornado, but particularly with fires, it spreads to other communities. So there's real long ranging consequences to these disasters. And it's really, really challenging first responders. And let me just toss out that, you know, clearly we're talking about major disasters and, and that's not to take away from those states that aren't experiencing these major disasters. They're also feeling the tension of being spread thin from first responders, you know, in an area like Alaska and Maine and some of these states where they're getting tremendous snowfall. Well, firefighting, now I've, I've been at a luxury. I have not fought fire in snow. That's a completely different ball game in, in and of itself. So they definitely have their own challenges. That's for sure. But um, it's, it's a difficult problem and it is just impacting multiple communities. 
I think you all bring up an interesting point about like the definition of community resiliency, at least from the civilian side, when we talk about communities being able to bounce back from these sorts of events, what we hear is how are you as a family prepared? How are you and your neighbors prepared? What do you know about, you know, your town or your city's policies or procedures for when these kinds of things go down. But what we don't hear about as much is how are the actual first responders set up in order to be in these high stress situations where there are multiple emergencies happening at once. So I think that's a really good point, at least to, at least from our side, you know, expand the definition of what it means to be resilient as a community, because we can't be insular when it comes to these kinds of grand scale events that are happening so often. It really does take the entire village and everybody in it. Agreed. And and Banana strikes on something really important. It's very difficult for fire chiefs to deliver this message because it's sort of counterintuitive to what we think we're capable of doing as a fire service. And that's a message to our community, right? If you, when you call, we'll be there and we come and we provide, uh, you know, high quality service in, in a quick time. And during disasters, that that isn't the case. And to be realistic about what are the expectations to the community is really important to communicate. It's a difficult narrative as a fire chief to go to your community and say, hey, listen, when the when the disaster hits, we won't be there for you. We'll get to you eventually, maybe, but more likely than not, you're going to be have to be self-sustaining and then and then provide the resources and their support or or what we need. But right. That's that's tough to say as a fire chief. That's tough to hear as a community is when the real bad disaster happens, because that will impact folks well beyond what daily 911 emergency services are impacting. The resources will be spread way too thin. And what does that look like, right? And what does that look like for our community? And that's a great message to get out to our fire service listeners uh, who are who are tracking this is now is the time, you know, when you're not in a disaster to be preparing for that disaster. And and those, you know, how how quickly you adapt to the impact of the emergency and recover from it is how I think of resiliency. And I think we have a responsibility in the emergency services field to uh, engage our community and how to train them to be uh, resilient on their own. Yeah, and that resiliency is, is, is so important. You talked about resources already being spread thin in a disaster that impacts a community. What some citizens aren't considering is that all the first responders may not be available. In other words, there's an expectation that sometimes a third to a half of all first responders, if you are in that community that's impacted by an earthquake, by a tornado, they are dealing with their own family challenges in those situations. So fire chiefs could be at a situation where they're already stretched resources are even thinner and they go to what's called AB rostering. So instead of having three groups of individuals to help staff emergency responses, they may only have two, but that's just to provide some perspective of what fire chiefs are dealing with, what the first responders are dealing with, you know, so this issue of increasing catastrophic circumstances in certain states, it doesn't just impact one segment of the population. It really drives through the entire community. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about disaster because that is a problem that's not going to go away. Nope. Keeps us all employed. (laughs) If you want to ask any questions about our podcast, you can contact us at fireheadlines at wfca.com. If you have a question, if you have insights, we would love to hear from you. Bob, Jeff, it's always a pleasure. Thank you both so much. And thank you to our listeners. And we'll catch you all next week for more Fire Headlines. Fire Headlines.